0: And we've had a few guys uh, who are ridiculously talented come to the project and say, they want to work with us because Alberto is on the project. And to wow. them, the fact that Alberto is here for guys who know him in the past, it's a huge signal of, of quality to the project. Say, if a guy like Alberto is willing to leave being a CTO of a successful company to join our project and lead our engineering, like that is just a
1: huge signal in itself. Seems like quite the free agent signing you got there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hello everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Kareem baruch and I'm very excited to be able to bring to you what will be our second conversation with ZenCash co-founder Robert Viglioni. How are you doing today, Rob? Awesome,
0: Kareem. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for coming on. Yeah. So I wanted to let the audience know right off the bat, I originally reached out to you after the 51% attack that happened a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, you've been very busy. You were traveling. I was traveling as well. But I want to take the most advantage of your time. So we're not going to rehash stuff that we covered recently. If anybody's interested, we do have a Zencash 101 where we break down the project. We had an interview with Robert, which was published on April 17th. If you want to go look at that, that looks at the project in depth, but I want to maximize our time here and really focus on updates with the project, the attack itself and stuff like that. So you ready to get started? Let's do it. (laughs) Awesome. All right, so right off the bat, Let's dive in. Why don't you tell us exactly what is a 51% attack? What isn't a 51% attack? Because there's a lot of confusion, of course. And if you can, describe the attack that actually took place.
0: Sure, yeah, thank you. This is very nice to, to make the distinction because there was a lot of misunderstanding about what happened. And essentially what a 51% attack is, uh, it's the idea that uh, some malicious miner can you know, temporarily have uh, sufficient hash rate or kind of mining control of the network to be able to invalidate a transaction or double spend. So basically spend the same coin twice. So what happens typically with these attacks is um, the attacker will go and deposit some, some cryptocurrency into an exchange, uh, and then they'll wait for that, that deposit to confirm, then they'll trade it, and then withdraw the crypto from the exchange, and then inject into the blockchain Basically, a sequence of blocks that invalidated the original deposit into the exchange. So, the the way that they do this is they mine in private, kind of a sequence of blocks that invalidates the you know some deposit, and um, and then they they go and inject the sequence of blocks into the chain. So, what it, what I've been telling people is that it's not rocket science. It's a very well defined exploit from Bitcoin's longest chain rule, and you know, quite honestly, we just need to modify it. So, I think. For the last 10 years, we've known about this vulnerability to any Bitcoin-like cryptocurrency uh, and we know exactly how it happens. Now, to to dispel what is not a 51% attack, which is probably just as important as what is one. So uh, what is not a 51% attack is hacking your private keys and stealing your Zen or stealing your Bitcoin, your cryptocurrency. That that has nothing to do with a 51% attack. At at worst, what a 51% attacker can do is double-spend their own cryptocurrency. They can't go out there and actually steal anyone else's crypto.
1: So would I be correct in saying that in order for you to have been directly affected by a 51% attack, you would have had to directly transact it with the individual performing the attack? Like if they had sent me 10 Zen cash and I accepted it and they were the party doing the attack, then maybe I could get screwed. And in this case, it was the exchange that suffered the losses. Is that correct?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So that's exactly it. So people that need to really pay attention to this type of uh, vulnerability... Or people that deal with very large transactions because it doesn't make sense to you know spend half a million dollars to steal ten dollars worth of coffee, right? Uh, it makes sense to invest half a million dollars, roll the dice, and maybe try to steal a million dollars from an exchange. So that's exactly what happened here. So there's there's some misnomers. So. Uh, number one, you have to come up with some way to get you know sufficient hash rate, and we're not a very small project either. So for us, we're about middle of the road as far as projects go with uh, mining capacity. So we have about um, you know eighty mega hashes per second or uh, mega mega solutions per second that happened on. our our network which isn't small by any means it's much smaller than bitcoin for sure Um, but we're about you know one one eighth to one tenth of zcash so we're small relative to zcash zcash is small relative to the bitcoin and there's probably a thousand projects that are smaller than us out there as well so we're kind of we're kind of in the in in the middle of the road Um, but really what we need to do is we need to think about modifying the 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 consensus rule that makes this possible, which in our case, right away, so the the first thing that you have to do under a 51% attack is increase the confirmation minimums for before an exchange accepts a deposit. So this is exactly what happens. You know, the morning of the attack, actually we were on communications with all the exchanges that we partner with, and we made sure that they increase the number of confirmations. So if you want to deposit money into Binance, for instance, it'll take a hundred deposits or a hundred confirmations before it's actually counted as a deposit. Uh, you know, but Binance is really smart with the way they do this. If you deposit one Zen, it won't take you a hundred confirmations. If you deposit like a thousand Zen, it'll take you a, you know, so they, they do it on a sliding scale that makes sense. Uh, now that's a temporary fix, of course, because you know, someone could now go and say, um you know mine 125 blocks in sequence which is very hard to do like this is not something that's you know an easy exploit by any means um and then they could they could defeat that but 100 100 minimum block confirmation is pretty good and so far um has solved the problem temporarily but what we're doing is we actually have a a more permanent engineering fix in the pipeline that we're actually going to release on our test night in once two weeks that i think will really uh be a nice innovation for the industry because we're modifying the longest chain rule to build in a a penalty mechanism for delayed reporting of a block. So the whole way that this thing happens is by not reporting blocks that you mine and and a malicious miner can then mine say like 40 blocks in a row without reporting them, then report them all at once. Uh, we, We stop that. We penalize you for delaying at all a reporting of a block.
1: Okay, so I was going to further ahead ask you a question which basically revolved around... You had previously mentioned that your team was exploring three different engineering solutions which were viable. But you, yep. were, when I was listening to you, you didn't really get a chance to get into it. Is this Does this mean that you've basically converged on this one engineering alternative? Like this is the path you're taking or are other options still being explored?
0: No, so actually the, the way it is, the, the three things that we have to defeat this is number one, increase confirmation times on exchanges. So check, check on that one. Two is this penalty mechanism, which you know I, I think will be extremely effective. And in fact, um, the way that we have it, we, we have kind of a generalized um, penalty like function in there to kind of, uh, we, we could tune or tweak or adjust the penalty metric itself arbitrarily uh, as much as we want. So we think that this could kill the thing entirely. But we do have a third solution in, in works as well. The third one is, is a Komodo-like solution. So Komodo actually was a pioneer of this like They call it a notarization scheme, where essentially every kind of, uh, you know, uh, a a certain defined block intervals, so say like every 10 blocks, every 20 blocks or whatnot, you can actually notarize your chain and say, this is the truth of the chain, and you can't invalidate that. And you do this by looking to some sort of like outside mechanism to notarize it so that in, in case you're your um, system itself is compromised. You always have some external system that can notarize. So we're thinking about something very similar where we use our own nodes actually. So our nodes are kind of a a separate mechanism from the miners. So we can still use our nodes as a notarization service. Now, if you were to compromise our node network, this would be a Sybil attack, which would mean that they would have to have over 51% of our nodes. Uh, And given the fact that our nodes require stake in Zen to actually set one up, This is a massively costly uh, attack vector for someone. But we would lay this on top of the penalty mechanism. So really, there's there's three things here. One is just the the confirmation. But realistically, once we implement the other two, we can bring confirmation minimums back down to a very low level.
1: Okay, so those are very interesting long-term solutions. And before we keep going, I want to take a step back to discuss a little bit of what was the immediate response because internally – uh, we were very impressed with the way that Zencash handled it. You know, obviously, in a perfect world, what we want is for these types of attacks not to happen. But in the real world, what we want is quick, efficient, coordinated responses. Uh, one of the things that you said is well. First, I want you to talk about you know how you guys were able to do it, but couple of things you said, number one, was that you guys had set up a tripwire, which used statistical analysis. And second of all, you described it as your team literally running war games in preparation for this type of attack as 51% attacks became more prevalent. So give us some of the details of how that came about, because that sounds really cool, and it obviously worked.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so one thing that we've been discussing internally for a while now was resourcing our, our own red team. Uh, because, you know, just coming from like a military background, you, you want to red team everything. You want to act like your own worst adversary and try to, you know, uncover all of the vulnerabilities that you think, you know, exist in your system. Now, we're talking not just technical vulnerabilities, but, you know, we want to harden even the people in our system because you know, people are always vulnerabilities, whether it's passwords that are compromised or maybe you, you fall victim to a phishing attempt or, you know, there, there's a whole range of kind of attack vectors for any ecosystem,
1: ignorance and malice. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. Right. Some of them, you, you know, you, if you have a malicious actor within your team, that's always the worst case scenario. Um, but you know, even for these things, you you have to build in precautionary, you know, kind of uh, measures in case you know what happens if you know someone in your system goes rogue, uh, which happened to us, right? Like when we first launched. We had an insider attack. It was absolutely horrible, devastating. Uh, it took us like six months to recover credibility on that one. All right, so it's like every every worst case thing that could happen to a project has happened to us, which is why I think we're one of the most resilient projects on the market is because we've seen it all and we bounce back. So what we did was actually a few weeks before our attack, there, there was a very famous uh, article that came out. I forgot where it was published, but it was basically like a list of projects and the cost of hash rate to do a 51% attack. And you know right. all projects out there, the entire industry saw this and said, wow, this is ridiculous. <laughs> We're all vulnerable. So of course we weren't like idiots just sitting around doing nothing. Uh, you, know, you, you can't responsibly go and change your system architecture in like three weeks, okay? So what we did initially was, okay, let's set up uh, a team, let's set up tripwires, we need to have advance notice if something goes on. We have to have a plan in place if something does happen because, you know, we have to assume that something's going to happen. So what happened was, I mean, we, we have a tripwire on hash rate out there. So I, I get an email and our team gets an email whenever like, the, there's a, a hash rate jump over what is a statistical norm for us. So that's, that's cool. And then we can look at that and have some analysts look at chain and is anything weird going on. This is exactly what happened. And as soon as our analyst saw something weird going on, you know, I got a call at like uh, 1230 in the morning. I was on the way home after dropping off a buddy and I get a call saying like something weird is going on. We have to start, you know, spin up a team and start deep diving on this. Got home right away, looked at it. It looks like we, were, we had a double spend in the works, multiple double spends. So we spun up the team and we spun up not just our engineers uh, who are tracking things real-time. We spun up our ops team and our BD team to reach out to all of our exchange partners immediately. We spun up our our marketing and PR teams to actually document, catalog everything that was going on and synthesize this into coherent messages so that the very morning of the attack, so the attack happened at like, uh, I mean, I think it started like 10.30 East Coast time on a Saturday. Um, by the time I, I was pulled in, it was like two hours later, but by the time we realized it was an attack. By, by like five in the morning, we had mess- coherent messaging to go out to the world. So it was really really cool to see how everyone came together, worked all night to make sure that we mitigated the damage, contained the damage, you know and then explain what happens to the community which i think was the most important thing
1: no you guys moved extremely quickly on that and i guess uh, that's the value of preparation you know it's not just about being the smartest guy in the block but actually preparing for circumstances like this you you touched on this a little bit but even though we've known about 51% attacks about that possible vulnerability for a long time they weren't really that relevant or prevalent until recently And what do you think? Why do you think that it became more prevalent now? And what does this mean for the Satoshi consensus and the space as a whole?
0: Yeah. So what I think happened is, uh, well, two things. One is the industry has become much more economically uh, valuable. So I think that, you know, Bitcoin was massively vulnerable to 51% attack in 2009 and 10 massively. It's just there really wasn't enough economic reward to, to go and do it. right? So what was the point? Uh, now, when you have a quarter trillion dollar industry, um, the incentives are, are magnified significantly. And number two, I think the hash rate for hire has collapsed. So the cost of hash rate has collapsed significantly, where it, it's now uh, feasible to go and you know, garnish a whole bunch of hash rate and point it at a particular project. So, it's just a weird convalence. and for us it it happened right after we were listed on binance. So you can see the the economic incentives for us because the project became much more valuable, jumped, and then you know the the hash rate to pull something like this off, um you know it it was it was within within reach for the you know the adversary
1: right. That makes perfect sense essentially. From the perspective of the adversaries, all of these attacks represent a risk, right? Because when somebody's trying to take an attack like this, it's not that, oh, it's going to cost them $200,000 to guarantee success of an attack. They're just taking a risk. And you're basically saying that the cost of hashing has gone down and then the possible rewards have gone up. So that risk reward has geared more towards the go ahead and make these attacks basically, right?
0: Exactly. So I think as an industry, we've kind of crossed over the threshold where the expected return from doing this might be positive. I'm not sure if it is positive because we don't know how many attempted attacks there were You know, in the ecosystem that just you know failed. People go and invest resources and try it out and it doesn't work.
1: I could be wrong about this. It might not have been you guys, but haven't we seen spikes in hash rate, which seem to indicate that there were attempted attacks and they just didn't go anywhere, basically. But obviously, that doesn't make any news. Yeah.
0: yeah, so we see spikes in hash rate all the time, especially with this tripwire that we have. Thing is, we don't know always why there's a spike. You know, it could be you have a very um, you know prominent pool that just happens to you know go down or shift to some other you know or shift on or shift off. You can have entire farms that happen to you know. So the way that professional miners work is at least the really good ones all, algorithmically point their their hash rate to whatever is most profitable at the moment. So you often just see like actually large shifts in hash rate coming on and off. So the statistics are actually hard to figure out what's going on.
1: All right, that makes a lot of sense. And all right, this is going to be my last question in in relation to this specific topic of the 51% attack. Uh, but I felt like getting your perspective on this would be interesting because on the one hand, your project is, has been the victim of a 51% attack. But on the other hand, from what I've gathered, your views tend to be more on the libertarian laws faire side. So my question to you is whether or not this is enforceable. Do you think that the cloud mining companies should have some type of responsibility to cap the hash rate that they rent out based on the 51% threshold?
0: Honestly, I do. Uh, I, I do. So my, my perspective is I, I would like to see these cloud miners, like NiceHash in particular, um, be responsible and realize like you should not allow, you know, X percentage of an entire network's hash rate to just you know suddenly be directed towards it. I think that there's something wrong with that. I think that we should be looking at kind of like uh, boundary conditions for these types of things. Now, how do you set the boundary conditions? Right, you mentioned I have these libertarian leanings. Uh, does the market set these things? Do we come together as a coalition? I, I mean, we're trying to advocate within the industry that we have like voluntary compliance with just best best practices and strong ethics. Um, you know, you can't. It's hard to force this kind of thing. I I don't know if we'll ever see a day where. Doing, you know, allowing this type of uh, hash hash for hire would ever be illegal. I don't know if we'll ever come to that, but yeah, I would like to see just kind of voluntary compliance for sure.
1: Right, exactly, and I think that's what I was getting at because especially when you can set up a mining rig anywhere in the world, every jurisdiction is different. So yeah. it's pretty clear that you can't just enforce some kind of global rule about this. But just from the perspective of being a responsible business in the space, trying to grow, I feel like that should be a factor that they should consider.
0: Yeah, in the way that I view it is uh, you know that this industry is going to be every regulator's crosshairs and a very like juicy target for regulators to attack. So as industry participants, we should be going out of our way to not just be ethical but to show the world that we're just constantly doing the right thing and constantly trying to be like on, you know, good behavior and setting high quality standards. Because, you know, there are a lot of sharks in this industry, and that's unfortunate because they're going to bring down kind of the wrath of the regulators on all of us, which sucks.
1: Yep. Indeed. Tragedy of the Commons type situation <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So let's move on to some updates and insights from you about Zancash itself. One of the things you mentioned in the past was that Zencash plans for smart contracts is to implement them through sidechains. Can you explain how this would work and why you're pursuing it?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, I'm the long-term vision for Zen is we're, we're we're going way beyond a cryptocurrency. So the way that we viewed cryptocurrency is kind of like one of our first apps, I mean, our first and probably most important app. Uh, but the vision has always been to be a broader ecosystem. So this this paper that we released, I think it's a couple of months now, really kind of um, brought or showcased the vision of where we want to go with uh, kind of a side chain solution. So our version of a platform is not to do everything on the main chain because I think that this is very limiting in scalability. Like just look at what Ethereum is going through right now in yeah. terms of scaling. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a challenge, right? So I think that the way to do it, not just from the scalability side, but also from the security side is to do things in containerized sidechains. So that's our solution. That's what we're going forward with right now. And our our engineers have been redirected to focus on this 51% attack thing for the last month or so. Uh, But one of the most important and interesting things that we've been working on in the background is the sidechaining architecture. Because the sidechaining is the way that we want to massively scale side-chaining is the way that we want to introduce you know enhanced scripting functions for smart contracting right this is really the vision for we want to have our voting system on a side chain we don't want all the votes going on all the time to be kind of clogging up the main chain we want to have the secure node and super node uh, tracking and payment systems automated on sidechain. like we want to do entire businesses like exchange markets on side chains so there's so much that we want to do and we kind of have in the pipeline Kind of, you know, to, to really push forward, but it's contingent on the sidechain architecture. So I think for all the things that we're doing, this is one of the most exciting aspects of the project.
1: Uh, Rob, even though I'll have some more in-depth questions about your DAG structure later on, would a sidechain also be a DAG once your DAG system is implemented? Or would the sidechains that operate with Zencash be more of like a classic blockchain structure? So it
0: doesn't have to be a DAG. It could be a DAG. And the beautiful thing is the side chains. The way that we we build them, we want them to be massively decentralized and many of them. So the the perfect vision that I would have. And again, like sometimes I get I get uh, chastised for being you know too like uh, optimistic here. So I, I do need to caveat all of this stuff with guys. We're at the, <laughs> we're at the very beginning of this work, right? This is this is just my my wildest hopes. Is I want to see specialized sidechains that do all sorts of things. So I would love to see a sidechain written in Golang. I would love to see a sidechain written in Scala. All right. I would love to see sidechains that have very unique functions, like a sidechain that's specific for like a voting system. I would love to see, all sorts of unique specialization that goes on side chains, geared towards different communities as well. Like there's even developer communities that, like Haskell developer development community that I have to say Charles Hoskinson with, um, you know Cardano is brilliant in the sense that he targets very specific specialized uh, communities and says like we want to be the big fish in this community. So I think that that's brilliant as well. So I would like to see all of this stuff done with with our project. And there's no reason to. Restrict it. Now, of course, we have to start somewhere and we have to start in a humble fashion. So actually, uh, I found out today that one thing that we're probably going to be able to do fairly quickly is a specialized sidechain for our voting system. So we already have the voting system in, in prototype. We're going to be packaging this prototype, um, you know, with a communication mechanism to our main chain to be able to run the voting system in a very, very nice, elegant kind of sidechain uh, manner. So, and
1: this is yeah. the liquid democracy that you guys have been partnering with IOHK to develop?
0: Yep, exactly. So we, we actually have that in prototype already delivered last month. So, uh, you know, the, the, there's been a ton of work going on in the background. It, we, we haven't been like broadcasting so much because we, we like to deliver things to completion first and then really talk about it. Uh, but. You know, I I think it's going to be a very interesting thing. And whether or not we put this stuff in a DAG architecture is TBD and almost unnecessary. So the first sidechains that we're looking at are probably delegated proof of stake, Um, you know, to be quite frank. I think DPoS works really well at scale. Um, So we can do like very rapid transactions across like a kind of a secure containerized sidechain in DPoS and not even have to go with the block DAG. So block DAG, I think the vision for me would be to see the main chain and block DAG. And then kind of sidechains could be block sidechains could be DPoS, sidechains could be whatever.
1: Sidechains could basically be whatever is most efficient for the goal of that sidechain.
0: Exactly, so there's entire projects that we're talking to, you know, like businesses that wanna do certain things on our network uh, where, you know, they already have a chain doing something and we're thinking, okay, we can potentially migrate that in a way that becomes interoperable with our main chain, which becomes then a de facto sidechain.
1: I got to tell you that the uh, liquid de- um, the liquid democracy that you guys are working on uh, with IOHK is one of the things that I'm most excited about. That it just it just seems so. It seems revolutionary in its potential, and also my personal perspective is that a lot of the projects that are implementing governance are not necessarily thinking about the game theory aspects, and from what I've heard come from you guys, it seems like you are. So this is a final product that I am itching to see in action.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too. So we started with the game theory, and and that's what's unique about us. We started with the game theory, and then we translated that into engineering. Uh, I think the the kind of common thing in the industry is to start with the engineering and then kind of uh, ex post think about well what happens then with the economics, right? So yeah.
1: As a as a side note, you know you probably don't know this, but actually the the three hosts of this podcast were all professional poker players. All our background is in game theory. Ah, so nice. <laughs> obvi- obviously, you know, when we see stuff like this, we're like, yes, think yeah. about it from this <laughs> angle. You know, everybody sees the world through their lens, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, another question here. We did notice through your Discord initially, you guys are either going through or have gone through a rebranding. What can you tell us about that? What was the motivation, the vision, everything?
0: Yeah, so I think one of the things that's held well, two things that have held us back quite a bit. One, we get confused with Zcash all the time. right? Zencash, Zcash. Some people call it Zcash, Zcash. So it's you know, it, it's kind of a branding confusion that just has sucked from the beginning. And I've never liked the cash aspect, to be honest. Uh, so I think the cash is limiting because uh, the cash signifies that the entire project is basically a currency, uh, which, which is not true at all, and was never even the vision. So even even calling it Zen Cash from the beginning was probably not the best idea. Uh, so the we've brought on some pretty heavy hitting brand experts, which I have to say, like even like my MBA was in marketing, and I have to say, like. I, these guys blow me away (laughs) like I don't even think about the kinds of stuff that they've brought to the table so having professionals actually kind of weigh in on this stuff has been huge so we brought in kind of a coalition team so some branding experts mixed with our own PR and our own marketing folks have been for the last one to two months um, doing like a kind of in stealth mode uh, cross-sectional analysis of our community our community our stakeholders doing surveys kind of uh you know, people not necessarily realizing what the survey results are going towards, but really ingesting a huge amount of information of what the community sees for this project. Like what values do they think we have? What's our mission? Where do they want to see us going? And they've synthesized it in a really good way that makes a lot of sense to me is a name should reflect more than, more than just something that sounds cool. A name should reflect where you want to go and it should encapsulate like your, your values, your vision, you know, in kind of a holistic look of the project and be forward-looking. So I think that's where the the we're calling it a brand expansion more so than a rebrand because we're really just kind of expanding the brand in a way like where Google went to Alphabet, where Alphabet's right. kind of this parent company, Google's a specialized element in there, and then they have other aspects. That's kind of like us. So, you know, we'll, we'll always be Zen in some sense, you know, especially on the currency side, but I think the brand is going to reflect going into this platform space in a way that the reality is, you know, people look at us and they discount us as a project because they think of us as a fork of a fork. But in six months, that's not, that couldn't be further from the truth because the innovations that we're doing, like our entire code base is going to be rewritten as a block dag. If we can pull that off successfully, like all of the, you know, the code and the engineering innovations that are ongoing, it's a disservice to us to constantly look at us as a fork of a fork. So, you know, kind of, Breaking away from this mentality and breaking away from the confusion of our brand and signaling that we're going down this very innovative plat- platform direction, I think, is the big purpose of the rebrand or brand expansion.
1: I think that's a very good decision on your part, and it's good to see you guys go in that direction. I do think that it's very possible to, um, you know, basically detach yourself from that perspective of the fork because, for example, I feel oftentimes when something like Dash is discussed, people forget that it's a fork, you know, it's just kind of viewed as its own thing because they've managed to break away that dynamic. They brought enough to the space independently and branded themselves in such a way that they're their own thing now, even though they were a fork originally.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And same with 90% of the projects in the space. Right, 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 right. right, 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 Yes.
1: My, most most of the projects in the space are directly descendant of the big daddy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So I this is probably the only, I don't even want to say tough question. We just want to get in your head a little bit, but we have to ask it. We love Zencast so much that you guys are the only asset that we hold in crypto as a podcast. All, all of us oh, wow. individually, of course, own different cryptocurrencies in our personal portfolios. But as far as money that belongs to the, to the podcast, you guys are our only crypto holding. We have two secure notes. We love the project. We're probably going to be with you guys for a long time. But we were scratching our heads when we heard about the Pornhub partnership, in particular because you guys are there with uh verge and tron which they're just not projects that we think of even in the vicinity of the professionalism and vision that you guys have right. so give us some insight as to what motivated that decision
0: yeah yeah so i mean i guess the first thing is not to disparage any other projects but i mean we came to this independently so we're not working with any other projects in the space right uh, now, for us, the, the vision all along was to make very useful products that actually you know have real-world applications. And if, if you just think about the real-world applications for privacy, I mean, the adult entertainment industry is probably one of the, the biggest legitimate use cases for where people may not want their payments um, to be visible to the world, right? Uh, so that, that was the motivation was, you know, we, we want rapid new user acquisition. Like We think about things like a business, and we think about how are we going to get the next 10 million users into Zen, uh, how are we going to get the next 100 million users into Zen. Uh, so we're thinking, well, this is actually a massive growth market for the entire industry that represents a legitimate use case of the privacy technology. So Now, of course, we don't want to brand ourselves a porn coin. This is not right. what we are by, by any means. So if you look at the way that we market this stuff, it's very subtle, like very kind of tasteful, mature. Uh, we look at this like a business. We're not like going out there and like uh, pivoting in, in any kind of like seedy way.
1: Right. No, no, no. And And just to be clear, you know, both to you and to the audience, it's definitely not a connection to the adult industry whatsoever that kind of raised our eyebrow because it's it's a genuine industry and there's definitely no moralizing from this perspective. It was more the fact that it followed. We know in the case of Verge, for example, they raised a ridiculous amount of money that we felt uh, yeah, would just be so much better invested anywhere else. So I guess one of our hopes was, for example, well, we hope that Zancash didn't throw in a similar amount of resources just Not to have... All. No. Just to be able to plaster that name <laughs> all over. You know what I'm saying? It, w- exactly. it was more about that. Right. More so, so than the industry. You know, and here's
0: what I can say. Number one, we have uh, probably the best, um, you know, BD negotiators in the industry, I, I would say. Uh, so no, not even close in terms of the resources okay, invested. <laughs> okay. But number two, uh, we're we we're, we're a very professional like outfit, I would say, in the sense that we're not just listing and forgetting this for us was actually to kick off a, a coherent inc- and um, you know consistent campaign over time for massive new user acquisition. So we're actually integrating this into kind of a, a coherent team of VD and marketing and even like our customer support and engineering groups to like come up with like nice uh, products and UIs and like tutorials to kind of educate and like really bump in hard into this industry and in, in a very like uh, – um, I would say aggressive way. Now, aggressive but tasteful. Again, we we don't want to be known as the porn coin, but we do want like 10 million users to actually be using Zen as a product.
1: No, yeah, so of course. Funny. And and privacy, you know, privacy is clearly and unmistakably related to the adult industry, and yeah. we don't think there's anything wrong with that. So, basically, your response is well, some projects may have used this as a flagship banner marketing. This was more part of a grander strategy for you guys, a smaller part that is going to incorporate other uh, partnerships like it. Is that a fair assumption?
0: Exactly. And and so partnerships like it, but also just like, um, you know, a whole suite of like user tutorials, a whole suite of kind of like uh, targeted marketing efforts. I mean, targeted like business development. So there's a lot that we have in the pipeline kind of related to this. Uh, This really just wasn't like a a one shot for a headline. Like, I mean, maybe, maybe this is the case I, for other projects, I have no idea. But for us, right, it's right. it was always uh, we're we're making an investment here and kind of signaling like a, a big strategy push. like we, we don't do things just for headlines.
1: Excellent. that's that's yeah. what we like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so I think just recently, yeah, I want to say two days ago, maybe not, don't quote me on that, but you guys just launched the beta for your Supernode layer, right? What can you tell us about how that's coming along and what should we expect going forward?
0: Yeah, so I would say very successful already. So, um, you know, Supernodes don't officially go live until next week with the hard fork in terms of payment accrual. Um, But we already, as of yesterday, I think we had something like 40 Supernodes on the network, which is nice to see. I mean, we're, I would say, my personal projections, I would project in, by, by the end of the year, about a 1000 to 1500 super nodes on our network. Um, longer term, I'm expecting about 2500 super nodes. Uh, but there's just not enough Zen supply in the world <laughs> to, to set up this many super nodes right now. So this is kind of a interesting economic dynamic is there's, um, you know, a fairly high ROI to set these things up, I think, you just based on 10% of the block reward being divided right now to 40 super nodes. I mean, obviously we expect probably about a thousand or so initially once we earnings start. Um, but still like there's just not enough Zen out there. So I would say that this is going to be a very, very successful part of our ecosystem. And the project's growth is to see the, the super nodes unfold.
1: And just a quick, very quick overview. Can you remind us what extra features this layer will add to the Zen network?
0: Yeah, so the way that I describe this is like our, if you you know, especially for uh, some poker players, I think you'd appreciate this. But I view like the, the secure nodes is like our dealers and the super nodes is the pit bosses. So,
1: Oh, nice.
0: Yeah, so like what we want to do, like we want to be really uh, censorship resistant and decentralized. So we, we have to migrate the secure node logic and all of like the tracking and the payments on chain. And that's exactly what super nodes are meant for. This was the original motivation for super nodes was, well, we need another class of nodes to actually track like automate the tracking, the payments and migrate that logic on chain. So we're not running server clusters, for instance, which are vulnerable, centralized and all that kind of stuff. So that that's where super nodes go. But then we started extending this stuff with side chains and thinking, well, we're building out this whole side chaining architecture for a platform with all these D apps we plan to build on it. Well, The super nodes are planned to be the workhorses of this kind of uh, platform architecture.
1: Awesome. Awesome. All right. And uh, are there any other major changes that we should expect with that upcoming hard fork? Or is it mainly for the super nodes?
0: There's, there's uh, one, like my favorite line of code that's going into the hard fork is oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it re-implements re-imple- or re- reactivates uh, op return function, which is essentially a function that allows us to append um, kind of a, a non-transaction um, data, um, a bit of data to a transaction. So basically we could do, we have one partnership we've had in the pipeline for like six months now, which is a PGP provider for Gmail called FlowCrypt. That they want to actually store their users' public keys on our chain, and they couldn't do this until we reactivated this function opReturn. So I'm very excited for opReturn to be returning to our blockchain with this hard fork, uh, which will now <laughs> enable this like PGP um, you know tool suite to to run on Zen. So I'm very excited for that.
1: So it basically what allows you to put like additional script into a block, essentially. Yeah, to append
0: non-transaction data, basically. So right. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the same thing in Bitcoin. Bitcoin has it. Uh, Right. That's what
1: the the Genesis block has, that whole uh, bailout for banks kind of thing. Is that what we're referring to?
0: Chancellor on verge of next bailout. Exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the famous, from a libertarian perspective, very famous. I think that will go down to history, is one of the most oh, famous statements.
1: It's already uh, history. Uh, yeah. <laughs> already, 100%, it is iconic. <laughs> I'm a history major, so I look at that and I'm like, wow, I lived through that. That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But so something else I also
0: wanted to mention uh, upcoming news. So this isn't even engineering, but uh, maybe financial engineering based, but um, Grayscale Investments. Like one of our, are new and and very uh, happy to announce partners. I mean, uh, well, Barry Silbert from Digital Currency Group announced uh, on the Grayscale side recently that they're setting up a Zen Investment Trust. So uh, this is, I think, huge for the project and so underrated is when we have these kind of, these institutional partners that do their due diligence for months and months, deep diving on our project, getting to know the people, getting to know our technology. And when they go forward with a project like this, this should signal to the market a whole different level of quality, but not just that. This is a mechanism now for institutional investors to get into Zen. Huge, absolutely huge. So, and I think completely underrated right now. And they're going live with the trust, I believe, end of Q3 or early Q4. So that's that's something to watch out for.
1: That's very exciting. And one of the things we talk about a lot on our flagship episode where we just talk about the news is uh, – institutional investment is clearly the next big wave. I mean, that's yep. the next jump. And, and it it just keeps getting teased left and right. And we see little snippets of it, but it's it feels like that wave is really coming. So knowing that Zancash is positioning itself to benefit from that in a major way is good to hear.
0: Yeah. You know, like like I was telling those guys actually last week is we're thinking five to 10 years into the future. So five to 10 years from now, we want to be a dominant project. And that's kind of everything that we're doing is geared towards that long-term perspective.
1: Okay, so the question I was about to ask you involved the liquid democracy a little bit. So you already mentioned that. But the other part of partnering up with IOHK on is the DAG protocol. Can you give us some updates about how how that's coming along? Any new developments or snags or interesting updates?
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh I, and I alluded to this a little bit in this last bi-weekly yesterday. Um but really the the, the update is we're going to have uh, um, a paper with results um, coming out next week we're targeting with IOHK. So we have some preliminary results from the research, and I could say the snag is there were some concerns about the security or validity of some math proofs. Uh, so actually the, the team went through and tried to kind of redo some of these math proofs and redo some of the security characteristics um, to put it in a way that we're a little bit more comfortable with. Uh, so we'll see the results coming out next week, hopefully. And that'll be uh, a nice thing to, to you know, publicize.
1: Okay. And I, and I had a follow-up question on the DAG, which um, mm. probably just a lack of education on my part, but I was hoping you could break this down for me. You've mentioned before that one of the benefits that you see with the DAG is that you'll be able to collapse the mining difficulty, which would essentially render ASICs irrelevant. So my question or the part that I don't understand is, like wouldn't the hashing power remain proportional? Like if somebody has an ASICs and they have 10 times as much hash power, wouldn't they still be able to generate 10 times as many blocks as somebody with a GPU? Uh,
0: so, so maybe. Uh, so I, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself and, and make claims. So um, if you collapse difficulty, which we're going to do, um, and now you can kind of tur- you know turn on your GPU and your GPU in kind of half a second can solve a block. Um, it may be an ASIC in, I don't know, a quarter of a second can solve a block. Uh, it's still a competitive race in some sense, but we're going to be having dozens of blocks solved per second. So even if an ASIC is going to solve a block fairly quickly, there's still plenty of room you know, for other actors on the network to also solve blocks very quickly.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so it's not yeah. so much that ASICs isn't going to have an advantage, but just that the advantage isn't going to be so pronounced that the GPU becomes almost impossible to operate.
0: Exactly. So the the advantage kind of gap that I see should be collapsing. Now, I, I think that, of course, there's always going to be new and innovative ways to kind of gain advantage. This is what just markets do. Um, but I think it's going to be a very interesting kind of uh, we're tr- sort of democratization of mining again, where hopefully you won't even have to go through a pool. Uh, because I think pools are actually just as, you know, potentially centralizing to the industry as ASICs, right? Maybe more so. Actually, yeah. we have... <laughs> We have We've a few seen dominant pool. Yeah, exactly. So if pools decided to go malicious, this would be devastating for the industry, especially for smaller projects. So I think we still have so far to go in terms of decentralization on mining. We just need to keep marching in that direction. And I think that this whole like, collapsing difficulty through the block dag concept is a huge step, uh, like a leap in that direction. I, I just don't want to be too over-optimistic about like, the, you know, saying that Hell, ASICs will be irrelevant. I don't want to say that. I just think that the, the advantage gap is going to collapse.
1: Okay. That makes that makes yeah. perfect sense. I just wanted to get that clarified. Um, yeah. That's a really good right. point. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously your partnership with IOHK has been great for Zencash, um, but I would... Say that also because of their popularity in this space, it's probably overshadowed a lot of your internal engineering. So I was hoping that you could take a moment to let our audience know a little bit about, uh, like Alberto Garofalo, who he is, how he came to work with ZenCash, and what he's accomplished for your team already.
0: Yeah, you know, actually, one thing I was thinking was we need to get get him like out in the news much more often because. He is a genius, first of all, and I would say he's like a Leonardo da Vinci of blockchain. Uh, the, this guy is incredible. He's been in the industry. He came into the industry initially working uh, for us. So, but we we snagged him as uh, he was the CTO of an Italian software firm uh, called Inventia, which did like very sophisticated kind of machine learning for. Uh, like facial recognition services and applications for like financial services firms. So very sophisticated engineering work that he's been doing, and I'd say the way that he thinks about problems is incredible. So even after like things that we do, we just take for granted, like l- the longest chain rule on Bitcoin, for ten years the entire industry knew that there's a vulnerability here with fifty-one percent attacks. It took him a day after our own fifty-one percent attack to kind of think through a new a new. Um, you know consensus protocol that would make this irrelevant. So, and, and then of course, like then he doesn't just come up with this and write a paper and, and go. He then starts putting together simulations to show, like, wow, look at the performance, you know, results that we can have by this this kind of slight shift. So ex post, looking at the things that he proposed, are like, oh wow, duh, of course this is so obvious. But it takes that kind of visionary mind to see it in the first place. So we really lucked out big time by having Alberto. There, there's, there's a whole list of examples like this where he's innovated on things that we've taken for granted in Bitcoin for a decade. Things like the way that hashes are read, um, you know, from, from disk. Um, this is a very simple like quadratic scaling problem that we've had in the industry of uh, if you have a many, like a many input transaction, say like a transaction that consists of like 500 inputs. And this happens from when exchanges do withdrawals all the time. What they do is they sweep small, small UTXOs, bundle them into a transaction, they release that and, to the network, and the transaction will have like 500 or 1000 inputs that equal some sum of, you know, coin that you want to, you know, transmit. Now, what this does for um, machines as they're reading the transaction is they have to do, uh, verify the hash of one of the inputs, then go to the next input, verify that hash, then verify the hash of both of the inputs, then go to the next one, you know, and so forth. And they you have, have to this- do that with every single yeah, one and then exactly. accumulate it again. Exactly, wow. and this is why um, we were actually having um, network congestion when we went on Binance. I don't know if you remember that. Um, the network looked like it was breaking down because we had a flood of people pulling money off different exchanges to put it back on Binance. And as the exchanges were kind of sweeping these small UTXOs, dumping them on chain and these many input transactions, machines, especially miners, when they go in, they they kind of call get block template. They were called like when you call get block template, you know, to kind of put together, synthesize a block, you have to go and verify the hashes of all these many inputs. And you have this quadratic scaling issue then Alberto. And again, like one day of analyzing the issue, came up with a really simple caching mechanism to like make sure that just as you're moving forward down reading all these inputs, you're caching the results instead of recalculating them with every single input. Something very simple after the fact, you look at this and say, yeah, of course, makes complete sense. But something <laughs> that's been on Bitcoin for a decade now, no one's actually solved this kind of thing. So I I, I can't say enough um, good stuff about Alberto. He's he's a visionary thinker, but he, he can also dive into the weeds and do all of the, the heavy lifting. So right now we're actually looking at standing up, um, an engineering team in Milan, Italy, where he is right now. And in fact, uh, my wife and I may actually move out there temporarily to help stand up a team in an office because I think he's been doing an incredible job managing our, our distributed team, but we're looking at hiring some extremely high quality specialists to work with him directly in an office. I think it's going to be unstoppable.
1: Oh, man, that's that's really exciting stuff, you know, just to have that kind of talent and relationships and the way that your team is just surrounding itself with, you know, talent, quality people. <laughs> it's really exciting, man, uh, I got to tell you.
0: Yeah, you, you know, I have to say, there, I just did an interview yesterday with another guy that Alberto brought to the table in in Milan. And uh, this guy, we'll, we'll be announcing it in the next month. He is way too overqualified to work with us on what he's going to be working with us. Uh, way too overqualified. Uh, his, the level of talent is ridiculous and he's just so successful in engineering and software for decades now, but he just wants to work on the project. He loves the vision, loves the mission, loves the team. It, most importantly, he loves Alberto because he knows Alberto from former work and to him actually, and we've had a few guys, uh, who are ridiculously talented, come to the project and say, they want to work with us because Alberto is on the project. And to wow. them, the fact that Alberto's here for guys who know him in the past, it's a huge signal of, of quality to the project. Say, if a guy like Alberto is willing to leave being a CTO of a successful company to join our project and lead our engineering, like that is just a huge signal in itself.
1: Seems like quite the free agent signing you got there. oh man all right uh i'm getting close to wrapping up here i promise um (laughs) i have a few questions about a recent talk that you gave at the blockchain and bitcoin conference in georgia Ah, Uh, i will put that link in the show notes for anybody that wants to watch it it's a good talk it's not very long Um, one of the things that you say at the beginning is that you believe crypto may be the most competitive market in the world. And I hadn't really thought about it, but the more I thought about it after you said it, the more plausible it seemed. So I wanted to give you a chance to maybe just present your arguments or your position. Like how did you come to that conclusion?
0: My God, man. So just participating in this market, it it is ridiculously (laughs) insanely competitive and I would say in a good way. So I think, you know, massive competition is awesome for society. It's hard for an entrepreneur though. So this is why entrepreneurs and business owners always lobby governments to like impose these kind of restrictions on competition because, you know, it sucks sometimes, you know, to be in this massively competitive market. But I think it's great for society. And the reason that we're in it is because you just don't have the barriers traditionally to launch a business. Now, you can go, instead of like building something from scratch, you can go grab Zen source code or Bitcoin source code. Clone it and launch a website, you know. And now, boom, you have a new project uh, on, in, in the market, and you can somehow, you know, list on some exchanges and do, you know, do all the stuff to convince people to join your ecosystem at very low cost. So I think this is great. The barriers to entry are non-existent, basically. I mean, the barrier. I think it's becoming more competitive in the sense that you know, look at our team. We're we're professionalizing right. fast. So now, if you go and you fork us. You're competing with our 50 guys who are pretty awesome in you know 80,000 person community. So you know the there are now other types of barriers, but not arbitrary like regulatory barriers or economic barriers, which I think is very important. So I I welcome all competition. I think it makes society better. We just want to set a really high bar so that we're not you know anyone who's going to outcompete us is because they've earned it, not just because they whatever, just kind of come in. Because they had more money
1: to start out with. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. So I, I think that's, it's a really good thing. And, you know, now as an entrepreneur, I have to say this whole competing in open source world is new and open source today is completely different than open source 10 years ago because with the Linux, you know, Mozilla or Tor open source world, you didn't have a quarter trillion dollars at stake, you know, like we do in this industry. So I think the economics have shifted a little bit. So even little things like bug reporting. So bug reporting was something that you know, was always kind of taken for granted in the open source world where people said, if your project is open source, you're almost by definition more secure than a private company uh, and their, their source code. I, I don't think that's true anymore because I think that uh, now there's sometimes the economic incentive to exploit a bug is greater than to report the bug because now you can steal real money. And this is what we're seeing with all these hacks, you know, all the time. So I think now we need to think and kind of shift our thinking and not take so much for granted and think about um, how we compete in an open source world. And my solution is we should be hybrid organizations. Like we have to have ecosystems that can't just be copy pasted. So our source code can be open source, but the ecosystem that we build could be mixed. You know, someone can build an app on our ecosystem and they could keep it private and that's perfectly fine. They, They grow the ecosystem. Um, And you can't copy paste our ecosystem.
1: So it's similar to the concept of centralization where rather than a black and white or, you know, it should always be decentralized. You just have to look at, you know, the world is very complex uh, and you have to look at the goal you're trying to accomplish. Centralization is going to make sense in some cases. Decentralization is going to make sense in some cases. And this is probably the same for open source or patented or private or whatever.
0: I totally agree with you. And I think that this is kind of a more nuanced way of looking at the world where, you know, let's go beyond ideology and think about, OK, what benefits do we want from open source? Well, we want more eyes on code. We want transparency and all this stuff. Well, can we mimic that where it counts? And then can we kind of do other things that add value in maybe not the open source domain? but still add value to ecosystem. So I think the world is so much more rich and complex and nuanced than like binary thinking would, you know, which is where ideology tends to lead you.
1: Yeah, no, at this point in my life, I I feel like it's rare for me to find something where it is a binary solution because it tends to be a a spectrum of complexity on almost, Everything from the simplest yes. little thing I think about to something like cryptocurrencies. Yeah. All right. In that talk, you also mention Nicholas Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragility. <laughs> interesting for us because in some of our economic-themed episodes, we've mentioned The Black Swan before, yep. uh, you know, recommended. It's an interesting read. So. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the concept of antifragility and how you think it relates either to Zencash or the space as a whole, whatever you want.
0: Yeah, so the whole concept of antifragility is that your system should actually improve under stress. So it's kind of like an evolutionary system in a way where if something bad happens, some exogenous shock hits your system, uh, you could either, you know, have a negative outcome, right? Like your system could collapse. You could just be robust where you could withstand it. But anti-fragile is where you're actually getting stronger under adversity. And I have to say, over the last year, with all of the adversity that that our project has gone through, I would say we're hands down very anti-fragile, or at least moving in that direction. Like Every time something happens to us, like the 51% attack, we don't just survive it. We figure out now how to kill the whole 51% threat. You know, and like grow from there, improve our consensus mechanism. So this is, you know, I, in my opinion, I think the healthiest organizations are those that think in an anti-fragile way and not just think about survival and not just think about being robust,
1: right? It's about growing from adversity. Yeah. <laughs> and you look at something like Bitcoin and how much growth it's, has come from it. Yeah, um, definitely. All right, so th- I was saving this for last. I am going to totally allow you to say as much as you want or you don't want, but this blew me away, and this came from that talk. Uh, we covered the story on our flagship a few weeks ago, whenever it was, about this individual who stole a tank and... Took it for a joyride and he was tweeting out some stuff. We covered that story totally independently. I never in a million years did I make any connection to Zencash. And then you very briefly kind of touched on that during the talk. You know, whatever you're comfortable with sharing, can you please make the connection? And Brent, my co-host Brent, is going to love this part of it. I didn't tell him I was going to ask this question. He doesn't know that these stories are connected. He's going to love finding out (laughs) about this. So how is the Stolen Tank joyride related to your project? My God. So th- this was
0: like, it seems like we're, we're going to have an amazing movie about Zen one day. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be so much fun and exciting. <laughs> I mean, this was, uh, so actually when I mentioned that we had an insider attack early on, like the first couple weeks of our project, this was the guy. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I can't say very much in terms of, you know, other than there were some unethical and very, uh, legally questionable stuff that that um, you know happened. That uh, you know we you know swept all that information into the appropriate hands, and hopefully justice will be served one day. But when I heard about this whole you know tank hijacking thing, this was crazy. But but knowing the character involved here, of course, this did not surprise me in any way. <laughs> like this was <laughs> to be expected, and I would say is a ticking time bomb. And if he's out of jail already, I think this is a disservice to society um, because this is just truly a ticking time bomb.
1: Wow. I mean, it was complete insanity. There was even like a a live Twitter feed where he was just saying crazy things. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) I know, exactly. So I have no idea, um, you know, (laughs) what was going through his head. And I really can't comment on that other than just my personal experiences have been absolutely horrible. (laughs) Understood
1: uh yeah. All right, Rob. Well, I have taken a significant amount of your time. I really do appreciate it. Is there anything else that you want to tell the audience, or any updates, or any request, or call to action? You have the floor.
0: You know, uh, Kareem, it, it's always a pleasure, and the support that you guys give us, I think, is absolutely amazing. So, thank you very much for everything, and you know, thanks for having me on the show.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you cool. for coming on. We're going to be following your progress closely, and. You know, with Rob Viglione, my name is Karim Baruca. Thank you so much for tuning in.